the Sunday Sermons Podcast. I recently saw a poster that I thought was pretty cool. It said, face it till you make it. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I've seen fake it till you make it. And I, I don't agree with that. I don't think you should fake anything. But face it till you make it sounds a lot more like what we're talking about today. You actually just go ahead and keep going. You, you go ahead and do what you know you need to do and forget how you feel or if you're that good at it yet you get it done. I like that a whole lot better. As we continue our, our, we're actually about to wrap up the series. It wraps up next Sunday. But as we continue our journey talking about God's love, his agape love, the kind of love that we don't even have a real good word for it in English. I'd like to just remind you right here at the beginning today that one of the key elements of it is that it's ongoing. It never stops. It's relentless. It just goes and goes. A good illustration of how God's love works, I think, is our food pantry. We actually partner with several other bigger food pantries in the community to be able to reach as many people as possible. But every Two Sundays, you'll see a card out there. This is one of those. And all, uh, if you are hungry or if you know somebody who is, all you got to do is just grab a box. There's nothing to fill out. We have a lady named Sue Hay and several others in our benevolence uh, program. And make sure that this all just keeps going. It's always there. If people are hungry, we're going to find a way to feed them. And that's just one of many ways that our church and so many other churches, people who love Jesus, like to help people. But the point here this morning is this. It's ongoing. Every two weeks, you'll see that cart. Anytime you know somebody who's hungry, just come by. We'll give you one of the boxes. You don't have to wait two weeks. God's love keeps going. That's why Paul says there's things that love always does, and it never does. It's the same. Let's look at this one more time. Love always is patient and kind, and it always celebrates truth. Love always shelters others and trusts as much as it can and it expects good things out of the people that it loves and out of that relationship and especially out of God. It perseveres no matter what and love is never proud or rude or selfish or irritable or envious or boastful. Love does not hold grudges or delight in sin or ever just give up. This is God's love. This is what is constantly being given to us and not just given to us, but commanded of us and empowered in us if we just will do it. It's the way God looks at life. It's the way God asks us to look at life. It's a perspective. It's an approach to all things. If you would read out loud with me, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, one more time. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As we looked at last week, this all things is not a literal thing as in like a list of all things, 100% of all the things in in an object sense. It's in a perspective sense. It's this is how you approach everything, whatever comes your way, good or bad. This is how you approach all those things. Greek word there is panta. The second word in this phrase, it hopes all things, is elpidze. And like most of these words, I, I, I clarify them not because I'm just so much of a word geek, though I am, I'll raise my hand and admit it, 
But I share it with you not, not, not in any way other than I just want us to understand it. And there's so many ways to understand hope. I could tell you that I hope that I'll win the lottery someday. I guarantee you I, I won't because I don't, I haven't even bought a ticket. I don't even have one chance in a billion. I, I, I will not win the lottery. Okay. And by the way, I'm not telling you you should go buy a ticket. I, I, I don't, that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I know I won't. So if I hoped I would, it's just nonsense. Does that make sense? It's not going to happen regardless. The idea of hope in the scriptures, what, what we translate as hope is not some, I, 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 I wish, I, I just think maybe it's a confident trust in something you already know and believe in. Okay. It's a hope that is based on something. And it's the reason that you keep doing what you do. It's, it's the kind of hope that keeps you going. If you're a person who writes stuff down, this is your first chance this morning. And if everybody at least would say out loud with me, hope in the biblical sense is two things, trust and motivation. Uh, actually, if the next one, I think it should say hope equals, there it is. Let's say this together. Hope equals trust plus motivation. Those are the two elements of hope. That's what makes hope, hope in the scriptural sense. And God gives us hope because he's trustworthy. God gives us hope because he is, uh, he offers us the kind of love that motivates us best. A great example of someone who understood this is Paul, who actually wrote 1 Corinthians 13. I'd like to read a passage just now from 2 Corinthians. After he sent him that first letter, then he followed up with a second one. Thank God we still have both. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, pay attention, here's the motivation. This is why he comforts us. So that we may be able... To comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then Paul starts sharing his story. He starts sharing how he experiences this and how this has worked for him. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And then it gets really personal here. Listen to how vulnerable he's being. This, this gives me hope because I get it. If Paul even felt this way, maybe I'm not that big of a loser after all. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I don't know what you're facing right now. This might be a really great time in your life. It might be a really hard time. On the surface, it may seem like everything's great, but deep down inside, one of your problems is just wrecking you. It, it may look like it's a huge, big problem to everybody else and you don't feel like it. We're all different. I get that. But I, I, I guarantee you at some point in your life, you're going to experience what Paul's talking about here, where whatever you're facing makes you despair of life itself. 
That's where we need hope. And hope, not just a mindless, childish idea that maybe something better will happen. Trust and motivation in God himself. Trust and motivation that things will get better because of him. He delivered us, Paul continued. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We team up with each other by praying, by walking with each other through the hard times. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that is similar to agape. It's chesed. It's hard for me to say that. It's kind of clears your throat, kind of a little thing. Chesed. But it's the selfless kind of love, the kind of love that God has for us and asks his people to have. It's a foreign kind of a concept that we don't come up with on ourselves. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. Whatever translation you use, you'll probably see that same word translated in at least four different ways. One is a word that Bible translators actually invented by shoving two words together. Loving kindness. Ever seen that one this long? Loving kindness. And, and, and another one is loyalty, mercy, and the phrase steadfast love. When I was a kid, we, we, we used to sing a, a, a chorus, thy loving kindness is better than life. Anybody know that one? If you know it, sing it with me real quick. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee, I will lift up my hands unto your name. That's a good song. We should sing that more often. Anyway, that's Psalm 63, verse 3. And that word, loving kindness, can also be translated several ways. Here's one way. This is the ESV. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This whole series, we've been looking at several love stories. If any of them could kind of be seen as a romantic story, it might be this one, but it's really not. If you pay attention to all the cultural clues and the details and the dialogue, the story of Ruth is not really a love story. It's not a rom-com. Her and Boaz don't kind of meet cute and then somehow fight a lot. And then by the end of the story, they just decide to go ahead and stay together. That would be a rom-com. That would be a love story the way we like to tell them in movies. No, this is real love. This is God's love. In fact, that word chesed is used all the way through the book of Ruth because almost everybody in the story, all the key players demonstrate that to each other in honor of God. At the beginning of the story, you see a man named Elimelech. And when his kids are starving in a culture at that time, that they would, the acceptable thing would be to sell one of the kids into slavery to protect the rest of them. No, he moves his whole family to another country where there's food. That's love. He knows he's going to get made fun of. He knows they'll be rejected. He knows a whole lot of things could go wrong from that. And yet he does it to protect his family. And after he and his sons die and Naomi and their two widows are getting ready to come back, you see Naomi offering chesed to her two daughters-in-law. And so when she sets them free, you don't have to come back with me. 
It's a very kind thing to do. But it's even kinder when Ruth says this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so if anything but death parts me from you. May not be totally clear from several thousand years later looking back on this story, but she is giving up everything here. She is 100% giving up all of her heritage, all of her family, all of her everything, her home culture, every other option she might have and putting all of her eggs in the basket that is, I'm gonna stick here with Naomi and help her out. That's hesed, that's what that looks like. There's another word you see a lot through this story. It's translated several different ways throughout the scripture. And it's, it's, it's this word you'll hear in a second. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. That word we translate as worthy can also be translated able or valiant or strong. Weird, sometimes very rarely it can be translated as wealthy. But my two favorite ways and the most common ways to translate it is steadfast. I hope that sounds really familiar. And a man of noble character. This was Boaz. This was a rock solid guy. When it says he's worthy, it it, it means this is a guy who gets it. His lifestyle, his ongoing way of approaching all things is hesed. He acts a lot like God in the way he treats people. Later in the story, at at the moment where Ruth offers herself to him and says uh, she would marry him to create this whole new family with Naomi, and he gets it. This isn't a romantic moment. It's not a weird moment as it looks to us and from our culture. This is something that very cultural that they did. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but she's literally laying at his feet, and here's his response. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You are a woman of noble character. You are valiant. You are strong. You are able. You are steadfast. You are a rock-solid person who models chesed all the time. It's the exact same term used in Proverbs 31. Uh, where it says a noble woman who can find, and then it describes what that looks like. Anyway, back to the story. We see this woman again. If anybody could have played a victim card, it would have been Ruth. She had kind of a full house of things that she could have played, cards she could have played. But instead, she chose to make her life about serving Naomi, serving others, and just move on because she had hope in something bigger than herself. Notice I say, I'm going to use the word relentless a lot in the next part, and I'm not going to use the word ruthless, partly because Ruth is awesome and partly because it's, it's not that you don't care. It's, it's that you just keep going. And there is a difference. 
You can care deeply. You can hurt deeply. You can have fear. You can have doubt and keep moving. How many know what I'm talking about? You've done it in a thousand situations. You know how this works. Just, just to clear the palette for a second, one of my favorite poems is by Ogden Nash. It says, went riding on my motorbike with Ruth in back of me. We hit a bump at 55 and went on ruthlessly. <laughs> Few people get it little by little. It'll just kind of ripple. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relentlessness. We're talking about going on, keeping everybody together on the same vehicle, everybody in the boat. We're sticking together here, but we don't stop. Would you say this with me? Endurance is relentless perseverance. This will be up here on the screen in a second. Next one. Endurance is relentless perseverance. Relentless means you just keep going. And that's what only God can really empower us to do, to be able to keep loving even when our resources are totally spent. Even when everything in us is dying and just not getting anywhere and no longer has even a desire, it's God who can keep us going. Sometimes I'm just being straight up with you, all you Christians, all my spirit-filled, Bible-believing brothers and sisters, let me tell you, sometimes the only thing in us that keeps us loving is the spirit who's in us. And, and we can't do it sometimes without him. We all have way more self-control and way more will than we think we do, but there's some things only the spirit of God can do in us. And, and if you don't have him, you don't have it. And that's really important. But this, this, when we live this way, that's what James is talking about and how, when he talks about facing adversity. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them. Let me pause for just a second. Biblical wisdom is always about making the best possible choice. It's not about knowing some good answers. It's not being able to recite them, though that helps. If it's on the tip of your tongue, it's easier to make the right choice. But the concept of wisdom in the scripture is all about making the best possible choice in a given situation. And the situation here is you're in the middle of a trial. What he's talking about here, asking God for wisdom, I think it applies across the board. I think this applies if you need wisdom about anything, God's going to answer that prayer. But I think it's important to notice the context here. He's saying in the midst of a trial, when you're at your wits end, when there's nothing in you except the spirit of God that's still wanting to even love this person or forgive or keep going or whatever else needs to happen. At that moment, ask God what the best possible choice is. And he will give it to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For no one who doubts is, I'm sorry, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Please hear me on this. This is so important. So many Christians have gotten confused by this and misunderstood and totally derailed because they misunderstood this. James is not talking about a doubt going through your head. He's not talking about you having a doubt. He's not saying you're not allowed to ever be afraid or to have some questions along the way. What he's talking about is doubt becoming your perspective. Doubt becoming how you approach God and how you approach that situation and how you approach the person you're trying to love. Imagine you're running a marathon. You're at the 25 mile mile mark. And everything in your body is telling you you're an idiot. Everything in your body is saying, why? And you know all of this could just stop. It's so easy. You could just stop. You could just stop. What happens if you stop? All of that is for nothing. You just wasted your time. You never ran a marathon. You ran 25 miles and quit. There's a big difference. And it's less than a mile of a difference, but it's big. That's what it feels like. But I guarantee you, everybody who runs marathons at about mile 25, they're hearing those doubts in their heads. Do you you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever ran a marathon in here? It's, It's true. I guarantee you, their body's hurting their, their mind is playing tricks on them. They're thinking, what am I thinking? Why? Well, all that. But, but here's, what, here's what's real. They keep going. The doubt does not define them. The doubt is not their new faith. The doubt is not their new approach to life. It's something going on in their head. It's a voice in their head. That's all it is. They keep going. And when we keep going in the hardest of hard times and we're asking God, how, exactly how do I keep going? That's when he steps in. And if we don't do that, if we just quit, we're not going to receive that from God. That's what this means. You're going to miss it. Just like you'd miss finishing the marathon. You're going to miss what God is going to do to come through for you if you just quit. If you let the doubt define you. It's not a sin to have a thought go through your head. The sin comes when you entertain it, when you meditate on it, when you act on it, when you quit God because of it. Does that make sense? So if you're praying and there's a doubt in your head, keep praying. If you're struggling and fear goes through your head, keep struggling. God's going to come through. The same word that's translated endure sometimes can just mean remain. For example, Acts 17, 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Brothers and sisters, one more time. This is the key concept here that James is trying to tell us and what this idea about love is that we're exploring today is you stay, you remain steadfast. In fact, 
He says it right here. He goes on. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In, this, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's literal and metaphorical at the same time. In their culture, shedding your blood was also a way to say you got killed. Excuse me, but it also meant your blood got shed. I guarantee you the earliest readers, they're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about Jesus Christ himself in the garden, stressing out about this so much that he was literally sweating blood. But did he stop? This is an easy question. Did he stop? Did he keep going? Yes. Because the fear, the doubt, whatever you want to call it, was not what was driving Jesus Christ. The human part of him was experiencing and being tempted just like we are, but he kept going and that's why he won. Next, the writer of Hebrews talks about discipline. It's specifically about a father's discipline, how good fathers try to help their children learn the rhythms of life, form habits, form things that are going to shape them and help them be the kind of people that they need to be in life. And he says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Anybody who's ever learned how to do anything, you know what this is. If you can play the piano, chances are when you were a kid, you were forced to take piano lessons, but now you can play the piano. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you played sports, chances are you didn't love every single one of those trainings and every single one of those weeks. If a bunch of kids are either in or about just finished or about to start band camp here in Rome County right now, it, 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 it's pretty hot, it's pretty miserable, but they get good. This is how it works. You keep going. Would you say this out loud with me? There's one more thing to write down if you're writing this stuff down. Love hopes and endures all things. Again, that's not a call to put up with trash. That's not a call to put up with bullying, to put up with uh, abusive situations. That's not what this means. It's not saying literally every single thing that ever happens to you, you just, that, that's not what it means. It means you approach all things. You approach all situations. You approach all relationships, all abuse, whatever else you approach it from this godly perspective. Love hopes and endures in all things, if you will. Because we, 
As followers of Jesus, as spirit-filled Christ followers, we love from a unique perspective that we can't generate on our own. Only he can generate that in us. And if we keep going in situations nobody else can, we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to show off about. We have nothing to, to feel superior about because we're not. It's him in us that gives us the strength to keep going. I'd like to share three quick quotes in one short story, and we're going to wrap this up. Are you with me? Everybody got just a couple more minutes here? Here we go. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. We make the biggest difference for God right here, right now, when we act on our hope. When we keep going, we keep believing, we keep enduring. G.K. Chesterton says, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Where do you get that life? What's the ultimate source of life? This is also an easy question. What's the ultimate source of life? There we go. Stephen Covey says, private victory precedes public victory. Self-mastery and self-discipline are the roots of good relationships with other people. Would you read that one out loud with me? This is really important. Private victory precedes public victory. Self-mastery and self-discipline are the roots of good relationships with other people. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. If you're hearing all of this this morning and the Spirit's convicting you about a specific relationship that you are in, I I, I feel just very compelled to remind you this morning that you've got to deal with your stuff first. You can't fix the other person. You can't fix yourself. You can submit to God and he can fix you. But whatever hope we have in any relationship, we've got to do the stuff here. We've got to break free of the addictions. We've got to face the consequences, whatever they may be. We've got to get treatment. If your arm was broken, you don't just keep on going, right? You don't just go, oh, it's okay. Let's go play football this afternoon. You get your arm fixed. You wear the cast for a while. And then you go on. You need to figure out how to get well. You need to figure out how to get this going. That's part of the process of doing this. And if you care about any relationship, instead of just going, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, I'm not telling you to just suck it up. I'm telling you, you keep going. You do whatever that means because of the hope and the endurance we have in God. And where that always is going to start is what you need to do in yourself. I wish I had more time for the story of Esther this morning. I I, I got excited in the middle and I don't want to keep you long. But how many have ever heard the story of Esther? There's a lot you can get out of that story. But one thing I'd love to leave you with this morning is this. They all persevered. Their hope... Mordecai and Esther and everybody else in the story kept them going in several situations that I would have given up in. 
They faced the, a real threat of death at several different places. But because they kept going, because they had this hope in God. God isn't even out loud mentioned in the book, by the way, in Esther. That's, that's one of the unique things about the story. But they still believed that they were God's people. They still believed that somehow this whole thing was happening for a reason. Somehow God was going to keep the messianic line going. Somehow, someday there was going to be a Messiah. So God's not going to let us all get killed off today. Somehow or another, it's going to happen. And so that gave them the hope, a real hope to keep going and to make the wise strategic choices they made it step by step along the way. Does that make sense? And that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when we do that. I don't know what you need to do this morning. But I'm asking you to make a strategic choice this morning. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you'd like to join this church officially or make some other public decision. There's always going to be somebody here every Sunday to do that with you. If you want to make a private, there's always going to be somebody at the back. They'll just pray with you today. It's going to be me. But what, whatever you are facing, whatever you're doing, I beg you, I plead with you this morning, as we stand, as we sing, to just offer that up to Jesus. And, and, and embrace the hope and the strength that he will give you. Embrace the ability to endure. And, and again, in the biblical sense, not just taking it, but relentlessly persevering through it because of your hope in him. Whatever it is that you need to lay at his feet, lay it at his feet right now as we stand and as we sing.